0: Our Father, we want to bless you now as we come to your word. Will you speak to us through the mighty power of your spirit and in your mercy. Will you give us hearts that hear, that understand, uh, that rejoice and that find grace again at your throne. This we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Please do you take a seat. Our normal practice here at Christchurch is to preach through books of the Bible so that God is setting the agenda rather than me. It's not just a case of me sat in my office or studying the week thinking, what do I feel like speaking on this week? Uh, We tend to follow through chapter by chapter, verse by verse verse, so that God uh, can set that agenda. And we started a couple of weeks ago the book of Romans. Uh, So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 2. Uh, I'm afraid because it's a new venue, we can no longer bring like 120 Bibles, just haven't got the space. Um, So we're going to put out a pile next week for anyone who forgets, but it is worth bringing your own along um, so that you can follow along. But let me read Romans 2 and uh, I'll start at the beginning. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that? that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, But obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. if you arrived a little bit later welcome uh, again to Christchurch central and welcome to our, our new building uh, the idea was uh, to find somewhere basically more comfortable uh, until this week we've been crammed in the Woodhouse community centre and it was getting tight people weren't always able to sit down it was noisy so we looked for somewhere with more space uh, somewhere where we could sort of fan out a little bit somewhere a bit quieter in order to make well to make you guys more comfortable And then Romans 2 happens. <laughs> the whole idea of a church building basically is to provide a comfortable setting in order to better meet and worship the Lord God. There's a real pressure on ministers, I can tell you, to design, in fact, not just the building, but the whole service to be one of nothing but comfort. The, 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 the pressure is to want to please everybody, to make sure everyone walks out the door as if they've just sort of drunk five Red Bulls on this kind of spiritual high. And it is possible to do that. Anyone who's been in ministry a while will know and be able to tell you that there are ways, frankly, of manipulating people to make them feel good. You just need to know your audience. So for some people um, who are really into classical music, then a service a bit like the Queen's funeral will do the trick, probably without the, the sad bit, you know, the funeral and the coffin and the rest of it. But like the classical music, the organ, the trumpets, the choirs, the robes, the majesty of the building, that makes some people's spirits soar. Others hate that kind of music. Every time we put Classic FM on in the car, the kids are like, no, not Classic FM, Dad. For other people, they hate that kind of music, but they love just modern music. And so as long as you design your service with the right kind of music, lights, camera, action, then a certain demographic, a certain type of person will feel lifted by that. Here's the thing. It's totally possible to do that and lift the soul in exactly the same way as it would be lifted if you were at a classical music concert or a gig by your favourite artist. I've learned, by the way, not to give examples of popular artists anymore because I'm so out of date. Uh, It just ages me straight away. the pressure is for comfort, in other words. That's what we all want, a spiritual high. And as I sat down to prepare Uh, this week, it just struck me that essentially what Paul has done is crept in to our new venue and put a drawing pin on every person's chair to make us incredibly uncomfortable. If you follow through that reading, it is not the kind of cheery pick-me-up that frankly I might have chosen if I was just choosing a passage, uh, particularly knowing there'll be so many new people here this week. It is a passage full of talk about judgment, isn't it? Do you see as as we went through? Uh, it's there in verse two. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice wickedness. It's there in verse three. Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? It's there in verse five. Because of your heart, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. Children, wrath just means anger. You're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath. He says it twice when God's judgment will be revealed, three times, one verse. It's there in verse eight. For those who are self-seeking, there will be wrath and fury. It's there in verse nine. There'll be tribulation and distress. You just can't avoid it, can you? Paul is crystal clear. Remember, this is Paul He's begun his letter by telling us he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul says is what Jesus says. Paul is not writing just as a Christian, giving his kind of thoughts, like you and I might do if we wrote a letter. No, Paul is a spokesman of heaven. And he's begun the letter saying, I'm desperate to come and preach you good news. I've got this wonderful news, Romans. Paul had never been to Rome, but he longed to get there. If you read chapter one uh, a bit later, you'll see this. He longed to come and preach good news. He thought the church needed to hear good news and the world around needed to hear good news. And yet here he is, second chapter of his letter, wrath, fury, distress, judgment. And so we need to make a call pretty early, don't we? Either we rush past this kind of passage, tide it away, skip over it as we plan our preaching schedules or read our Bibles in the morning. Or we take it seriously. There are two types of people who don't take it seriously. And Paul knows that. As he writes this letter of Romans, it's, it's almost like he's looking out at the congregation and he sees people reacting in various ways. Now, as I say, he'd never been there, so it's kind of in his mind's eye. But it's as if he sees, uh, what's a good Roman name? Claudius there on the back row. And he sees how Claudius is reacting. So far in chapter one, Paul has said, people out there in the world, they all know the truth about God ultimately. Everyone knows God exists. We saw this last week, but we all suppress it. And so what happens is we end up living lives that are totally against the way he wants us to live. If you just look up at the end of chapter one, he gives this massive list. It's like pouring a bucket load of filth out. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderous, haters of God. On and on he goes. The world is a mess, Paul says, because of the way we've turned our back on God. And then he spots Claudius nodding and saying, that's right, Paul, you go get them. Finally, somebody will tell the truth. You're not one of these namby-pamby softies. You'll look them in the eye and let them know what they're really like. Those horrible, unreligious people out there. Total scum, Paul, you're right. And Paul says, hang on, hang on. He wants to talk to the person who looks out at the world and says, well, at least I'm not like them. And if we're honest, if you've been in Christian circles for a while or church for a while, that's a real danger for us, isn't it? We start to pat ourselves on the back and think, well, at least I'm not as bad as. Or fill in the blank. So in verses 1 to 3, Paul speaks to the person who says, well, at least I'm not like that. And he turns to that religious person, having looked at those who are not at all religious outside the church, he turns to that religious person and says, you've got no excuse either. Uh, you who sit in judgment... But on the world out there, you who rolled your eyes at the news. Now, he's not telling them off for judging, for making the assessment that it is bad to ignore God. Obviously, that is a right assessment. Paul is not saying, hey, let and live and let live, anyone can do what they want. That's, to- that's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. So, Paul is not saying that when someone says, do you know what, you shouldn't do that, that's disobeying God. Inherently, they've done something wrong. What he's dealing with is the hypocrite who looks down their nose at one person while doing exactly the same thing themselves. You judge, and yet you practice the very same things, he says in verse one. The very same things. The very fact that we're able to look around And make these kind of moral judgments about people, says Paul, shows, shows that we know better. Shows that we know we ought to live better. Imagine if if every time um, that you made any kind of assessment of another person, you had a little app on your phone. okay? call it the Romans app. Uh, And this app on your phone recorded every kind of moral judgment you ever made. Uh, so you're in the office, you're working, uh, and um, uh, someone's not done a project on time, and you say to your colleague, oh, "I can't believe it, they are so lazy." Your phone goes beep and records. Laziness is bad. A bit later, you, you go out for drinks, uh, and um, someone's being really, really gossipy, kind of bitchy about someone else in the office, and your phone goes, and, and you say, "I can't, I can't believe the way they talk about their colleagues." So your phone goes beep, beep, records. Don't be gossipy. On and on it goes. You sign the petition against online pornography and sex trafficking and exploitation. Your friend beep beep recorded. Sexual exploitation is bad. Online pornography is bad. Paul says Paul says, Never mind the judgment of God. What if we just printed out that record and held you against your own professed standards? you'd fail. In verse 1, you condemn yourself. Before we even get to God condemning anyone, you condemn yourselves. You fall short of your own standards. The person who signs a petition against online porn goes home and watches porn. The person who hates it when people gossip and bicker in the office goes home and bickers about how bickering and gossiping their friends are. The person who hates jealous, arrogant people Just can't stop talking about how arrogant other people are. And why can't people be more like me? Paul says you're condemning yourself. And therefore you're storing up judgment. Do you think you will escape judgment? And then someone else catches his eye. This time it's not somebody who says, well, I'm better than them. It's someone who says, look, Paul, nothing ever happens when I sin. It'll be fine. Nothing ever happens when I sin. It's down there in verse 4. Or or do you, this time it's not Claudius, perhaps it's Servius on the back row, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This person is kind of saying, well, look, you know what? I've sinned loads in my life. I've sinned loads. I lost my temper at the kids last night. A lightning bolt didn't fall out of heaven and strike me dead. I... I was uncaring and unloving. Out with my friends the other night in town, and the ground didn't open up and swallow me up. God's not that kind of God. God doesn't do punishment. God doesn't do wrath. Have you not read the Bible, Paul? God is love. What are your friends? The Apostle John says that. Are you not with him, Paul? I'm more of a John guy than a Paul guy. God is patient. And that is true, isn't it? And Paul totally agrees. You're right. He's going to talk about this in much greater depth as the letter goes on. You're totally right. God is patient and loving and kind. But that doesn't mean he's not going to church one day. If you don't repent, if you don't turn back to him, verse 5, you're storing up wrath for yourself. It's so easy to think like that, isn't it? If you're a Christian that you know, sin doesn't matter nothing ever happens. It's like a turkey. Do you to imagine a turkey? Okay, it's Christmas. It's not Christmas. It's, it's December. So it's December. Okay. And the turkey, what was out of his, what a turkeys live in? What was out of his hutch or whatever turkey lives in every morning with his turkey mates? And there's some food on the ground. Uh, and he thinks this is wonderful. What a lovely farmer. So he gobbles up the, the grain and he goes home and he wakes up on the 23rd of December. Oh, lovely day. Out he goes, gobbles up the grain, goes back to sleep, waddles out on the 24th. And someone says, now's our chance to escape. Guess, Why would I escape? This is brilliant. Grain every morning, nice house to live in. Life is good. Got this lovely, lovely farmer looking after us. I'm not escaping. And Paul the turkey is saying, no, no, you've got to, you've got to flee. You've got to, you've got to get out now. No, 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 no. Don't give me all that judgment stuff. Okay? The farmer is love. Provides me every day. Nothing ever happens. Wakes up on the 25th of December and gets a horrible shock. That's what Paul's saying to this second person. He thinks nothing ever happens. He's saying you're storing up wrath for yourself, verse five. Again, he's pretty blunt. He's saying, look, what you're doing is you're piling up wood for a bonfire. You're standing on top of it. You're dousing yourself and the wood with petrol and you're saying there's no problem here. (coughs) But there will be if you keep going like that, Paul says, because one day God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It will come. Just because you've not seen it today doesn't mean it's not coming tomorrow. Don't be like a turtle, Paul says, as Christmas approaches. And sobering, isn't it? But the whole thing really is, is just an explanation of verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. If you think you've got an excuse that is going to get you out of judgment, not me. God could never judge me. And if that excuse is an excuse, it's not flying to Jesus. We're going to talk about that. It's not that. It's just, I'm not that bad. Oh, once upon a time, I prayed a prayer. I've grown up in church. God doesn't do that to people like me. Member of the CU. I've read my Bible a bit. I've been baptised. If you've got any kind of excuse, forget it, says Paul. God is a God who rightly will judge. At this stage, let me stop and say, this is what the gospel, the good news, is going to be all about. In the sense that what we really need rescuing from is this, is the sin and then the wrath, the anger of God that it leads to. And so often we, we, we just hide this in church life because it is uncomfortable, isn't it? You might even sort of feel the uncomfort, the discomfort in the room, perhaps in your old soul, you sort of feel the weight of it, the dread of it. So many, I suspect, of our other anxieties in life, whether we're Christians or not, are because deep down we have a sense that one day we're going to have to be face God. <laughs> one day we'll be held accountable. As we try and distract ourselves, we do it with... Uh, busyness, throw ourselves into work, we do it with relationships, we dull the senses with drink or, or, or drugs. We do anything to try and just suppress that deep down knowledge that one day we have to face an account. And it's terrifying. And so what we need is a gospel that rescues us from wrath, from God's righteous anger. Good news that rescues us from that. The gospel, in other words, is not first and foremost about giving us a kind of deep sense of satisfaction. There are a million self-help books out there, aren't there? You walk into WH Smith at the train station or something, wall-to-wall books about how to have a better life or an easier life or a fulfilled life or a joyful life. Paul would say, that's just not what I'm about. Now, totally, in the big picture, it will lead to that. Heaven's going to be wonderful. But Paul is not promising. Jesus never promised in the short term that you would feel totally, 100%, all the time, from Monday through Sunday, fulfillment, satisfaction. It's not a pep talk, the gospel. It's not a spiritual Red Bull. And for others, the gospel, is not a, it is about rescue, so it is about rescue, but it's a rescue from something else. So the good news is that God will rescue you from ever being ill, or if you get ill, he'll definitely make you better. That is promised nowhere in the Bible. God will rescue you from poverty. Again, promised nowhere. In the Bible, God will rescue you from sadness, from anxiety, from depression. I'm afraid promise nowhere, at least in the short term. Now, all those things, thank God, are true in the long term. They're all part of the wonderful package of blessings that arrive when either Christ returns or we die and go to heaven. So they are true in the long term, but they're not short-term pick-me-up fixes. And what has to be dealt with most importantly is our sin and the wrath that it deserves Therefore, let me just say a word to, you, to those of you who are new in Leeds. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a slightly strange time of year for, for church leaders. Okay, I, know, I know quite a few of the church leaders in town. We, we are friends. It's not like a kind of warfare between us. You know, we, <laughs> we understand that uh, there are lots of churches in the city uh, that are uh, Jesus honouring and Bible believing all the rest of it. Um, so don't mis- misunderstand what I'm how to say. But make sure that whatever church you settle in, in, a, in the nicest possible sense I don't care if it's this one or another one <laughs> we'd love to have you, we'd love to welcome you but I understand that not every church is for every person but make sure you find a church that is going to put the real gospel at the centre and therefore it's going to speak about sin and wrath because without those things the gospel just doesn't make sense this is the heart of Jesus' gospel Paul's gospel John's gospel gospel. It's the heart of the message of salvation. One of the most famous Old Testament descriptions of the work of Jesus comes in Isaiah 53. Let me read just a few verses. Children, see if you can listen and hear two things that Jesus takes on his shoulders when he comes into the world. Two things. Isaiah 53. I'll read from verse 4. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we see him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But, here we go, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. and upon him was the chastisement, just means a punishment, children, that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Two things Jesus comes into the world, Son of God, becomes one of us, two things he takes on his shoulders, the first is the, the, the one that almost everybody gives when you ask them, what did Jesus take to the cross? I remember doing youth work many, many years ago now and asking the youth group, um, why did Jesus die? And uh, one of them said, well, he died because he loved us. Like, yeah, that's totally true, really importantly true. But, but why did he die? You know, I love my wife. I haven't just randomly killed myself to just show that I love her. It'd be bizarre, wouldn't it? If I was sort of walking along the road and I said, I'm not sure. Do you really know I love you, Georgina? uh and she said well yeah i think so but i, yeah. I said well watch this and just chuck myself under a lorry that okay, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever does it so, so why does jesus death show that he's loving or well, one of them said well it's they thought a little bit it's a bit of silence classic awkward youth group silence one of them risked the answer well he died for sin like, yeah exactly he took our sin to the cross but why did he die total silence Because we we have, so often in the church, cut the link between sin and punishment. What Paul called wrath, or anger, or fury. And that, thank God, is what Jesus also took on his shoulders. Do you hear that verse again, verse 5? He was crushed for our iniquities, that's our sin. But upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It's not just that he took our sin in some sort of mystical way to the cross, But also that at the cross, he was punished. He went into that wrath and fury for us. And all along, Jesus knew that's what he had come to do. His whole life is bookended by bloodshed. On the eighth day of his life, we read in Luke's gospel that he was circumcised. That is, without being too graphic about it, a shedding of blood, a cutting off. And it's at that moment we read in Luke's gospel, that he was given the name Jesus, which means saviour, he saves. The angel promised that would be his name, but if you like, that is his naming ceremony. On the eighth day of his life, his blood was shed. There was a cutting off that symbolises the cutting off of sin. Now, Jesus hadn't sinned, but already he was being prepared as the innocent one to bear our sin. His life began in bloodshed. And of course, it ended in bloodshed too as he went to the cross. And every step along that journey... He went knowing that he was going to carry our sin and bear the wrath of God. And all oh, because of love. We rushed to the cross. And the cross is the centre of everything. But have you ever thought about Jesus' life, what it would be like for him, who he'd become a true man, truly God, but also truly a man, knowing that one day he is going to face the full wrath of God at the sin not just of one man but of countless millions there's a painting by um, Hans Holbein and, um, uh, it's sort of it's a fictitious scene I suppose or imagined scene it's of Jesus in, the, in, in his uh, shed okay, when, when he was with Joseph a carpenter and he's stretching out his arms like this and the sun is shining through the window kind of behind you as you look at the painting. And he's stretching out his arms like this and kind of morning sun. And and as his shadow of his arms falls on the on the wall behind, you see that because it's Joseph's work shed, you see the nails hanging on the wall. And so the shadow, well, the shadow is of Jesus with nails through his arms. And Holbein's point, whether you, you, know, whether you think this should be paintings of Jesus or not, Holbein's, Holbein's point is a, is a great one. Jesus lived his whole life under the shadow of the cross. Not just the horrible physical pain, awful that would be, but knowing that through no fault of his own, but purely out of love for us, he was going to face that awful reality. Everything around him on the on the journey would remind him of it. Paul said this in chapter one, if you were here last week, that, that actually God's wrath in, in little ways is being drip fed into the world. The very fact that we say, Oh, I'm gonna live my own way, and Paul says that's that's not just gonna to lead to wrath, that's an example that God has already given you up. And if you say, Well, I'm never gonna get judged because I can do what I want, Paul says the fact that God is letting you do what you want show already He's sort of beginning to give up on you. Wake up. God's wrath is already evident out there in the world. It was meant to be a perfect world, wasn't it? A, a wonderful world. Genesis 1 and 2 talks of this world of, of blessing and joy. But we ruined it with sin. And then God, from Genesis 3 onwards, began to curse the world. Things became hard. Work became hard. Most obviously, we began to to get ill and die. And all of those were just little pointers to the great day of wrath that that was coming in the future. And Jesus, more than anyone, would see that. We're dopey. We're sleepy. We, We go home. We forget about it. We've got Netflix and Things to do, hockey club and off to the cinema and work and kids. And, and we forget there is this great day of our coming. Jesus didn't forget. And he would rightly read the signs around him. Any sign of pain or suffering in the world to his rightly seeing eye was a reminder that judgment would come. And particularly that he was going to have to face it. And yet on he went, incredible, all the years of his life, on he went. Out of love for you, that is what Paul wants you to treasure. He's not telling you about the danger of God's wrath just to make you feel awful. He's telling you it in the same way as a lookout on the Titanic might shout, "Watch out for the iceberg!" It's no use that the, the, the person on the on the deck who's enjoying a cocktail saying, "Oh, come on, like, don't ruin the moment." It's such a downer! We're on a cruise. Chill out. If there's danger coming, it's loving to let you know. And he wants, ultimately, and this is where the whole book of Romans is going, he wants to drive us into the loving arms of Jesus. No excuse, says Paul. Now, judgment will be fair. We haven't got time to look at this in too much detail, but in verses 6 through 11 of Romans 2, Paul says some things that might strike us as a bit odd. Verse 6, he'll render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, God shows no partiality. This might startle us a little bit. I thought salvation was all about grace, about faith. Why are you saying, Paul, that he'll judge each according to his works? Well, Paul is absolutely not saying, hey, you know that gospel you heard from everybody else, from Jesus, from me elsewhere in the letter? I've totally changed my mind in just this little bit of Romans 2. And actually, just for now, I'm going to say it's about whether you've lived a good enough life. No, he's not saying that at all. Um, His point, I think, is simply this, that when you come to Christ, when you see his kindness and it leads you to repent, to turn back to Jesus, then there will be fruit in your life. And if you never turn to Christ and keep living your own way, then your life will tell its own story. Back that app with its record. So when he says in verse seven, to those who by patience in well-doing seek glory, honour and immortality, he'll give eternal life. He's not saying those who are without sin, who live a perfect life can go to heaven because then heaven is going to be empty apart from one man, Jesus. Rather, what he's saying is to those who have turned trusted in Christ, their life will be displayed in some ways falteringly, certainly, imperfectly, yes, but in some ways by desire to live for the eternal rather than the here and now. Verse 10, same point, the other way around. Glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good. It doesn't mean perfection, but those who are walking in God's way. The fruit is not the thing that earns your way to heaven. It's just the evidence that you have put your trust in Christ. Children, imagine if you were, um, he got a job with a gardener one day and he said look I want you to go around I want you to cut down every dead tree every tree whose roots have gone rotten He said, well I can't see the roots how am I going to do that and the gardener says well look at the leaves if the leaves are green and healthy then the tree's alive if the leaves are spotty and, and black and curled up the tree's dead well you would know which tree is alive and which tree is dead wouldn't you not because the leaves make the tree alive it's the roots that do that Rather, they're the evidence. Well, it's the same with our works. Our works are not what save us. They're just the evidence of the fact that we have put our trust in Jesus. And that is Paul's point, I think, here and elsewhere. He makes a very similar point. At this point, some of you will be getting nervous, particularly if you're a tender-hearted kind of person who's really aware of your own sin. You'll start asking the question, have I done enough? And Paul says, no, 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 calm down. <laughs> Don't ask that question. It's not, have I done enough, as if... The way you're saved is trusting Jesus plus 30% good works. No, no, no. It's not faith plus works. Paul is not looking for perfection, but repentance. See verse four? The riches of his kindness are meant to lead you to repentance, to turning and trusting. From then onwards, some will be holier, some less so. Some more certain their faith, some less so. But everyone will have some fruit. One writer says this, Paul is not condemning shaky discipleship, but complacent hypocrisy. It's back to the verse that says, I'm okay because I go to church. I'm okay because God will never judged a person like me. No, the only safe place to flee to is Christ. And if you have done so, then your life will bear fruit. And if you're worried that it's not, the answer is not, therefore, to try and, Add some good works to your life. That would be like the gardener looking at a tree, seeing the leaf curled up and black and thinking, OK, there's no signs of life here. I'll go and get some green leaves and staple them onto the tree. That's not going to help, is it? What saves you, Paul, is really clear, is faith in Christ alone. That is the grounds of your salvation. So if you are nervous, you're looking you're thinking, then the answer is not I must. Do more, try harder, get enough works in the bank so that I'm one of those people. Rather, flee again. Say to the Lord God, I have got no excuse. My only hope is in Christ. And he will have you. You'd be terrified, wouldn't you? If I said, behind that curtain, is God on his judgment throne? And one by one, you're going to walk through and face him. And you're going to do so alone, without Christ. If you're not terrified, you'd be a fool. Jesus did so for you. There was no one to save Jesus. He didn't deserve it. But open-eyed, he walked through the curtain to face the righteous wrath of God at our sin. And that is a guarantee that he does want to rescue you. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Yes, the wrath should scare you to it. But if you're just scared of God, you'll never go near him. Just keep running. The good news that Paul is driving to you is God is kind. Jesus has done it all. So flee to him and rest in him alone. And you will be safe on that day. So don't try and whitewash wrath and sin. Don't try and hide your own sin away. But day by day, week by week, keep bringing it back to the cross. And know that he has done Everything. And you'll find that as you keep bringing it to the cross, the cross, as it were, will warm your heart and the fruit will grow. Let's pray God blesses the church in just that way. Father in heaven, uh, these are sobering words and we don't want to take them lightly. Uh, but we, neither do we want uh, to fear <coughs> uh, when you have uh, so graciously provided Uh, a safe haven in the person of your son. And so I pray for everybody here this morning that each of us children, uh, adults, that all of us would flee to Christ and see that he has finished the work of salvation, that in him is peace and security. Save us from the great uh, sin of complacency, hypocrisy, but encourage our hearts with the knowledge that you are full of kindness and grace and that in Christ we are safe. Bless your people, we pray. In his name, amen.